It's quarter to two in the morning of April the 12th, 1892. A full moon shines down as PC George Comley patrols the streets of Lambeth, South London. His tread is measured, his senses alert for anything suspicious. Comley's beat covers one of the poorest neighborhoods of London. He walks down street after street of half-derelict slums. During the day, the air is thick with smoke from the factories that have sprung up by the River Thames, some of them employing children as young as 10 or 11. The hours are long and the wages meager. It's little wonder that some locals turn to other ways of making a living. Comley walks past Waterloo Station, heading north up Waterloo Road. Every morning, the trains of the London and Southwest Railway carry commuters into the city. At night, a different economy comes into play, one fueled by sex. Lambeth is a notorious red light district, with sex workers walking the streets, touting for business among the prowling drunks. Many of the houses and hotels are brothels, though some of the working girls carry out their business underneath the railway arches. Comley turns into Stamford Street and heads east towards Blackfriars Road. He hears the door of one of the houses open, number 118. A man comes out. Something about him catches Comley's eye. He's about five feet nine inches tall and is wearing a top hat and black overcoat. He's well-dressed for Lambeth, a toff slumming it. The man turns his face away from the policeman, but Comley has already noticed his bushy moustache and gold-rimmed spectacles. He walked away rather smartly, Comley will later testify. Three quarters of an hour later, PC Comley is walking back along Stamford Street. As he passes the same house, the door bursts open and a fellow policeman, PC Eversfield, emerges carrying a young woman groaning with pain. There is one more inside, Eversfield shouts, as he staggers towards a waiting cab. Comley rushes in. He finds a second young woman lying unconscious on the floor in her nightdress. He picks her up and carries her out of the house. St. Thomas's Hospital is close by. On the way, Eversfield fills Comley in on the details. The two women are Emma Shrivel and Alice Marsh. Eversfield says he was called to the house after their shrieks of agony woke the other residents. Every now and then, Shrivel lets out a tortured groan. Her limbs writhe awkwardly as a spasm of pain grips her. But Marsh, the woman calmly carried out, is ominously quiet. Her only movements, a passive reaction to the jolting of the cab. Her eyes stare blankly. As the cab pulls up in front of the hospital, Comley realizes that Marsh is dead. The two policemen lift Shrivel out. She's still alive, but for how much longer? I'm John Hopkins, and welcome to Scotland Yard Confidential. 
the show where we delve into the files of London's legendary criminal investigation department. You'll be right there alongside investigators as they search for clues, interrogate suspects, and sort the truth from the lies. There will be twists and turns along the way. Sometimes the trail will run cold. Sometimes it will be a race against time. We'll rub shoulders with notorious gangsters, sit down with informants, and come face to face with cold-blooded murderers as we follow in the footsteps of some of the greatest detectives in history. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Dr. Cuthbert Wyman is on duty the night the two women are brought in. Wyman has plenty of experience in handling the diseases that are prevalent in an area like Lambeth. Alcoholism, venereal disease, tuberculosis. But he's never quite seen anything like this. He immediately suspects poisoning and orders Shrivel's stomach to be pumped. Shrivel passes in and out of consciousness. In one of her lucid moments, she gives a brief account of what led up to her and her friend's sudden sickness. She and Marsh had spent the evening with a man who had given them each three pills to take. He had also given them a tin of salmon, which they ate after taking the tablets. Comley asks if this was the bespectacled man in a top hat he saw leaving the house at quarter to two. Shrivel nods. Asked what his name is, she replies, we call him Fred. It's not much to go on. Then, just before she loses consciousness for the last time, Shrivel remembers something that could provide the police with their first lead. Back at the house, there's a letter from Fred. Emma Shrivel dies soon after dawn. Despite Shrivel's statement about the pills given to the women by the mysterious Fred, a police report into both deaths concludes accidental poisoning supposed through eating tinned salmon. This is the explanation that finds its way into the newspapers. But Dr. Wyman is convinced it wasn't contaminated salmon that killed the women. He takes samples from their internal organs and sends them to a leading forensic pathologist, Dr. Thomas Stevenson of Guy's Hospital. Dr. Stevenson is also given the remains of the tinned salmon to test. The inquest into the deaths of Alice Marsh, 21, and Emma Shrivel, 18, opens on April the 13th. The coroner is George Percival Wyatt. Six months earlier, Wyatt had conducted an inquest into another unexplained death, that of a 19-year-old sex worker 
called Ellen Donworth. Donworth had turned to prostitution after the death of her baby three years earlier. The verdict in the Donworth case was deceased died from strychnine and morphia poisoning, but how administered, there was no evidence to show. But there was evidence. It's just that the inquest jury and the police chose to ignore it. Donworth's landlady testified that Donworth had said to her, a tall, dark, cross-eyed man had given me something to drink, some white stuff. Despite this, Chief Inspector Colin Chisholm of Scotland Yard concluded, there is little doubt that she took the poison herself, knowingly. His superiors agreed that it was suicide. But Chisholm fails to answer one crucial question. Strychnine is a restricted substance, available only to doctors. So how did a 19-year-old girl get her hands on it? Whether she intended to kill herself or not, someone must have given it to her. Wyatt can't fail to notice the similarities between the cases. All the victims are young women, residents of Lambeth. All were involved to some degree in sex work and all had been given an unidentified drug to take by an unknown man, though in one case it was liquid, in the other, pills. During the inquest, more evidence emerges about the possible identity of this man. Marsh and Shrivel's landlady reveals that one of them had justified taking pills from a stranger because he was a doctor. The inquest is adjourned, while Dr. Stevenson completes his tests. Finally, after weeks of exhaustive analysis, the results come in. The pathologist finds no trace of strychnine in the salmon. However, multiple tests confirm the presence of strychnine in residues taken from the women's remains and vomit. Meanwhile, detectives searching Marsh and Shrivel's rooms find a letter, not from Fred, but from someone called George Clifton. It's a brief note, arranging to meet the women on the 11th of April, in other words, the night before they died. The police believe George Clifton is Fred's real name. The letterhead is from a hotel in Chatham, Kent, but inquiries there and in the women's hometown of Brighton lead nowhere. If George Clifton exists, the police are unable to track him down. The inquest resumes on the 5th of May and Dr. Stevenson is called to give his evidence. With his bushy grey beard, beetling eyebrows and fierce glower, Dr. Stevenson is every inch the expert witness. He consults his notes before clearing his throat to deliver his findings. He has found nearly seven grains of strychnine in Marsh, who was the first to die, and more than three grains in Shrivel. Dr. Stevenson explains that as little as half a grain would have been fatal. The inquest jury's verdict is death from strychnine, how administered, there was no evidence to show. Except that once again, there was evidence. Just like Ellen Donworth, one of the women had spoken of a man dispensing pills. Just like Ellen Donworth, she was ignored. 
In his Manual of Medical Jurisprudence, Insanity and Toxicology, Henry Codwallader Chapman describes the symptoms of strychnine poisoning. It begins with a general uneasiness and restlessness, followed by a feeling of suffocation. Chapman goes on. The muscles begin to twitch and the head and limbs to jerk, and then violent convulsions come on involving the whole body. The legs are stretched out stiffly and separated, the feet arched and turned in, the arms are flexed and drawn across the chest. Chapman describes how the head and body are so bent back that the patient forms an arch, resting on their head and heels. Breathing is constricted, the pupils dilate, the face becomes livid. In Chapman's words, the muscles of the mouth are so contracted as to give rise to a broad grin. The convulsions come in waves, growing more frequent and violent towards the end. Brief moments of respite are followed by intense and agonizing spasms. Death results usually in between five and six hours from asphyxia or exhaustion, says Chapman. The mind remaining clear almost to the last. It's a slow, painful death. Anyone who deliberately inflicts it on another human being must be a special kind of sadist. Now the police are forced to consider the possibility that there is a man out there who has used strychnine to kill at least two, possibly three times. And if they don't catch him, he may well do it again. The detectives investigating these deaths must have experienced a chilling sense of deja vu. Just four years earlier, another working-class district of London was terrorized by a series of shocking murders. The victims were also women living on the fringes of society. In 1888, Whitechapel had been the stalking ground of the serial killer known as Jack the Ripper. The perpetrator was never caught, but his crimes cast a dark shadow over the early history of Scotland Yard. Could it be that Jack the Ripper has moved to a different neighborhood and changed his M.O.? It seems unlikely, though there is at least one possible connection beside the class and sex of the victims. There was a theory that the Whitechapel murderer may have been a doctor, or at least had anatomical knowledge. Shrivel and Marsh believe the man who gave him the pills was also a doctor. What is certainly true is that the Yard's failure to catch that earlier killer has damaged their reputation. The coroner's jury at the Marsh Shrivel inquest is highly critical of Scotland Yard, saying the police had not exerted nearly sufficient energy in their efforts to find the man known either as Fred or George Clifton. The police are portrayed by the press as baffled. Detective Inspector George Harvey is part of the team investigating. Harvey had also been involved in the investigation into Ellen Donworth's death. He briefly suspected a 45-year-old jeweler called William Slater, who stupidly boasted of having a deadly poison in his possession. But it seems likely that Slater was just a bizarre attention seeker, 
and the charges against him were eventually dropped. After Shrivel and Marsh's death, Slater again comes under suspicion. A meeting is set up between Slater and PC Comley, the officer who saw Fred leave 118 Stamford Street. Frustratingly, Comley is positive that it's not the same man. Detectives now realize that PC Comley could be the key to identifying the suspect. He is taken off the beat and given a new assignment. Comley is to spend the next few weeks working undercover on the Strand, an area frequented by sex workers. His task is to examine the faces of the women's clients in the hope of recognizing the man he saw. But it's like looking for a needle in a haystack. And as Inspector Harvey reports, all efforts to trace the man seen to leave the house on the night in question by PC Comley have been at present unsuccessful. Meanwhile, officers carry out door-to-door inquiries in Lambeth. This laborious work eventually pays off. In late April, Sergeant Alfred Ward knocks on the door of 88 Lambeth Road and speaks to the maid there, Lucy Rose. Rose tells him that she used to work at another house on Lambeth Road, number 27, where a woman called Matilda Clover had recently died under mysterious circumstances. Rose paints a vivid picture of Clover's death, describing how the woman had screamed and writhed and was all of a twitch. In Rose's words, Clover's eyes rolled about terribly. Her body was racked with violent convulsions. Like the other victims, Clover was involved in sex work. On the night of her death, she had entertained a client, a man called Fred. In one of her calmer moments, between convulsions, Clover confided to Rose, that man Fred has poisoned me. He gave me some pills. Rose's account provides an insight into how the man was able to persuade women to take the drugs he gave them. Apparently, he told Clover the pills would prevent me catching the disease. For women like Matilda Clover, venereal disease was a serious risk that could cost them their livelihood as well as their health. Rose describes the man. Top hat, smart overcoat, bushy moustache. He sounds a lot like the man P.C. Comley saw coming out of 118 Stamford Road. What puzzles Inspector Harvey and the other detectives work in the case is why they have not heard about Matilda Clover's death before now. They soon discover the reason. The doctor who filed Clover's death certificate gave the cause of death as heart failure. In other words, natural causes, which meant that neither the police nor the coroner were informed. With hindsight, it's obvious that the doctor responsible had made a serious error. As a result, a vital lead is missed, precious time is lost, and a sadistic murderer is left free to kill again. Matilda Clover's body is exhumed, the remains sent to Dr. Stevenson of Guy's Hospital for analysis. But even before they have the results of his tests, police are coming to a frightening conclusion. Without doubt, says one senior officer, Ellen Donworth, Matilda Clover, Alice Marsh and Emma Shrivel 
were all killed by the same individual. Finding out who that individual is and stopping him before he kills again is now the Met's priority. Inspector Harvey and Chief Inspector John Mulvaney review the Lambeth poisoning cases, hoping to find a pattern. Ellen Donworth died on the 13th of October, 1891. Matilda Clover's death occurred just a week later, on the 20th of October. Then there's a gap of six months, before Alice Marsh and Emma Shrivel died on April the 12th, 1892. Why the pause in the killing? It's possible that the killer left the area. A witness claims that one of Alice Marsh's clients was a sea captain. Perhaps that explains the man's absence. Harvey and Mulvaney look for a ship that docked in English ports just before the relevant dates. But the data's overwhelming. There are just too many ships and too many seafarers to consider. And if that information turns out to be unreliable or irrelevant, all the time spent chasing it down will have been wasted. Another line of inquiry draws a blank. It's a warm, pleasant evening in May 1892. PC Comley is back in uniform and back on the beat in Lambeth. He still has flashbacks to that night when he carried a dying girl in his arms, and he is as determined as ever to find the man he believes killed her. A crowd is gathering outside the Canterbury Music Hall, ready to go in for the quarter past eight performance. Comley notices a well-dressed man behaving oddly. The man walks up and down, staring intently at the women, focusing particularly on those who appear to be sex workers. As Comley will later observe, that excited my suspicions. Suddenly, Comley catches sight of the man's face and experiences a jolt of recognition. It's him the one he saw coming out of the Stamford Street house that night. Comley can hardly believe it, but he's absolutely sure. As the man joins the crowd going into the theatre, Comley considers his next move. He decides to change into plain clothes and return later with backup, namely his L Division colleague, Sergeant Alfred Ward, the officer whose interview with Lucy Rose led to a crucial breakthrough. The two policemen wait discreetly for the man to come out after the show. He's got company now, a young woman, by the looks of it, a sex worker. The officers shadow the couple to a house and wait for the man to leave. They stay on his tail as he leads them to his own lodgings at 103 Lambeth Palace Road. The police now have an address for the prime suspect in four murders. The following day, Sergeant Ward checks on the woman their suspect picked up. Thankfully, she's still alive. She lets slip an intriguing detail, telling Ward that the man has recently returned from a trip to America. Could that explain the break in killings that had puzzled detectives? According to Ward's source, the man had confessed that he lived solely to indulge in women. It's enough for Ward's superiors 
to authorise an official surveillance operation. On May the 17th, the man is followed to the house of another Lambeth sex worker, a woman called Violet Beverly. Interviewing Beverly afterwards, Ward learns that the man claims to be employed as the agent for an American drug company. He even showed Beverly his sample case, containing an array of bottled pills. Ward and his team continue shadowing the man as he does the rounds of Lambeth sex workers. Reading the surveillance reports, Inspector Harvey concludes, he is an extremely sensual individual. It's then that the case takes an unexpected turn. An American called John Haynes walks into Kennington Police Station and complains that the police are unfairly persecuting a friend of his. The friend's name is Dr. Thomas Neal of 103 Lambeth Palace Road. It is the man Ward and his team have been shadowing. In the past, Haynes has worked for Scotland Yard as an informant. It was that experience that enabled him to spot that Dr. Neal was being followed by the police. Neal explained that the reason the police were after him was because one of his fellow lodgers, a medical student called Walter Harper, had asked Neal to supply him with strychnine to poison some sex workers who were blackmailing him. Neal had refused, but Harper must have got the strychnine somehow because the women were now dead. Inspector Harvey can hardly believe his ears when Haynes tells him their names. Emma Shrivel and Alice Marsh. According to Haynes, Neil also claimed that Harper had poisoned three other women, Ellen Donworth, Matilda Clover, and a new name to the detectives, Louisa Harvey. It's a lot to take in, especially as Walter Harper's name simultaneously crops up in a new piece of evidence that Inspector Harvey has only just received, a letter which had been sent to the foreman of the coroner's jury in the Marsh Shrivel inquest. Although he initially dismissed it as a hoax, the coroner had second thoughts and passed it on to the police. The letter reads, Dear Sir, I beg to inform you that one of my operators has positive proof that Walter Harper, a medical student of St. Thomas's Hospital and a son of Dr. Harper of Bear Street, Barnstable, is responsible for the deaths of Alice Marsh and Emma Shrivel, he having poisoned these girls with strychnine. This proof you can have on paying my bill for services to George Clark, Detective, 20 Coxpur Street, Charing Cross. The letter is signed by one William H. Murray. It turns out that the George Clark Detective Agency received a similar letter also supposedly from William Murray. Inspector Harvey and his men have a duty to investigate the allegations against Walter Harper, but it doesn't take long to eliminate him as a suspect. In the meantime, a note appears in the police case file. Get a specimen of Dr. Neal's handwriting. The task falls to Detective Sergeant Patrick McIntyre of Scotland Yard. McIntyre is a seasoned investigator, used to working undercover. He has a knack for befriending dangerous men, having in the past 
infiltrated Irish-American terrorist groups. McIntyre engineers a meeting with Dr. Neil in the Crown and Cushion pub on Westminster Bridge Road in Waterloo. The detective sizes up the man sitting opposite him. He's an odd-looking fellow, all right. A cross-eyed squint combined with an intense stare to produce an unnerving effect. Taken together with his dark, bushy moustache and almost completely bald head is the kind of face witnesses remember. McIntyre makes no secret of the fact that he's a police officer, but he presents himself as a friend who can help get the police off Neil's back. He quickly earns the doctor's trust. Speaking with an American accent, Neil opens up to McIntyre, telling him about his early life as a medical student at St. Thomas's Hospital and in Edinburgh. He tells the detective that he no longer practices as a doctor, but works as an agent for an American drug company. The money's better, he boasts. McIntyre arranges for Neil to meet Inspector Harvey and Chief Inspector Mulvaney, so that he can show them his sample case to prove that he is a legitimate commercial agent with a valid reason for possessing drugs. At the second meeting, again in a pub, Neil admits that he has been a good deal about with women, but did not think that a crime. A few days later, McIntyre meets Neil again, this time at the doctor's rooms in Lambeth Palace Road. Neil repeats his accusations against Walter Harper, saying that he heard it from a detective called Murray. This links Neil to the letters sent to the chairman of the inquest jury and the George Clark Detective Agency. Letters that Neil can't possibly have seen, unless he wrote them. Of course, it may well be that there really is a detective called Murray, who by some coincidence is known to Neil. But McIntyre doubts it. Neil's story just doesn't add up. Trying not to reveal his suspicions, McIntyre remarks that Neil seems to be well up in the history of the case. Neil replies, Being a medical man, I take an interest in matters of this kind. McIntyre decides it's time to get a sample of Neil's handwriting. For some reason, Neil agrees, perhaps because he knows that a refusal would look suspicious. The expensive paper he writes his specimen on has a distinctive watermark. Fairfield Superfine. Meanwhile, detectives follow up on Louisa Harvey, the fifth woman that Neil accused Walter Harper of poisoning. The name doesn't show up in a search of recently registered deaths in London. It's a strange anomaly. Who is Louisa Harvey? And why did Neil mention her? Is she another victim of the Lambeth poisoner? but one whose death has so far not come to light. If that's the case, Neil's knowledge of her name could be a further indication of his guilt. At about the same time, the results of Dr. Stevenson's tests on Matilda Clover's remains come in. Just as Inspector Harvey and his colleagues suspected, Clover died from strychnine poisoning. Neil must have felt the police closing in on him because he now instructs a firm of solicitors to lodge a formal complaint of police harassment against the Met. 
as our client is not conscious of any wrong on his part, he feels the inconvenience he is put to acutely. It's a bold move, and the complaint goes all the way to the top, but it fails to close down the investigation. Instead, one of the Yard's star officers is brought in to breathe new life into the case, Inspector John Bennett Tunbridge. The illegitimate son of a servant, Tunbridge was born in New Romney, Kent. At the age of 10, he was working as a butcher's boy. Like so many of Scotland Yard's early detectives, Tunbridge's background is solidly working class. Tunbridge first joined the Met in 1867, at the age of 17, though he resigned after just three months. He must have felt he had unfinished business, though, because he rejoined two years later. This time it stuck. In fact, Tunbridge showed exceptional talent and moved up rapidly through the ranks, reaching Inspector in 1878 at the remarkably young age of 28. He joined the detective branch in 1881, working in the commissioner's office from 1887. It may well have been his proximity to the top brass that recommended him for this current job. Without doubt, the most challenging and highly charged case that the Yard has dealt with for a long time. But Tunbridge is more than just a safe pair of hands. He's a brilliant detective with an exceptional forensic mind. As wary as a nighthawk and sharp as a needle is one contemporary description of him. Tunbridge is a youthful-looking 41 years old, exactly the same age as the man he's investigating. But unlike Neil, he has a full head of hair and his handlebar moustache is immaculately groomed. Reviewing the case file, Tunbridge is struck by the number of witnesses who describe seeing a cross-eyed man. Neil has this peculiarity, he notes. Other physical details match too, such as Neil's bald head and general build. Tunbridge is convinced that Neil is the poisoner. He believes Neil made up the accusations against the medical student Walter Harper and fed them to the police through his friend Haynes in a crude attempt to throw them off the scent. Tunbridge reveals his thinking in a report. Assuming Haynes's statement to be true, we have Neil accusing Harper of being the murderer in no uncertain terms. Now why should he do this? To me, it appears to point to Neil being either mad or the murderer himself. With impressive clarity and incisive logic, Tunbridge gets right to the crux of the matter. However, there is one possibility that he is not considered, that Neil may be both mad and the murderer. On the 29th of May at 11 o'clock in the morning, Inspector Tunbridge visits Neil at his lodgings where he finds him in a highly nervous state. Neil is known to take opium and morphine for recreational purposes and seems to have been overdoing it. To throw Neil off his guard, Tunbridge explains that he is there to discuss the harassment complaint. He asks Neil about his work as a representative for the American Drug Company. Neil shows him his sample case and even talks about a bottle of strychnine pills it contains, saying, It would be highly dangerous 
to let these articles get into the hands of the public. By the time he leaves, Inspector Tunbridge is in no doubt. His report on the interview concludes, Under all the circumstances, I respectfully submit that suspicion points very strongly at present to Neil as the murderer. On the 2nd of June, Tunbridge travels to Barnstable to interview Walter Harper's father about the accusations Neil made against his son. Dr. Harper shows Tunbridge a blackmail letter he had received a month earlier, signed by W.H. Murray, claiming to have proof that Walter Harper murdered Emma Shrivel and Alice Marsh. The writer threatens to go public unless he receives £1,500. Tunbridge examines the letter closely. The handwriting matches Neil's, and when the detective holds the paper up to the light, he can clearly see the watermark. Fairfield, superfine. Tunbridge returns to Scotland Yard and has his men look into the brand. They discover that it isn't stocked by any London stationer and is in fact made in America, a further connection to Neil. Meanwhile, detectives learn from an informant that Neil is preparing to skip town, possibly even to leave the country. Tunbridge pushes for an immediate arrest warrant. The plan is to charge Neil with the lesser crime of extortion. In the meantime, they will continue to gather the evidence they need to convict him of murder. The following day, at half past five, Tunbridge returns to 103 Lambeth Palace and arrests Neil for blackmail. You've got the wrong man, says Neil. Detectives search the doctor's room and discover correspondence showing that his full name is Thomas Neil Cream and that he has family connections in Quebec. Tunbridge puts in a request for an officer to be sent to the United States and Canada to trace Cream's movements before he came to England. The request is approved and the man chosen for the job is Inspector Frederick Smith Jarvis, described by the New York Times as one of the shrewdest of the Scotland Yard detectives. Jarvis will spend over three months traveling between Canada and the USA, following up leads. What he discovers will shock even the most hardened of his colleagues back in Scotland Yard. Jarvis's investigations reveal that Cream had left a string of deaths in his wake. The first occurred in London, Ontario, in 1879. Cream was at this time practicing as a doctor. One of his patients, a young woman called Catherine Hutchinson, was found dead in a privy behind his surgery. Hutchinson died from chloroform poisoning, but no one was ever charged in connection with her death. Interestingly, Cream's dissertation as a medical student at McGill University, Toronto, was on the subject of chloroform. To escape the scandal associated with this incident, Cream moved to Chicago, where three more women died after receiving treatment from him. Mary Faulkner, Ellen Stack, and Alice Montgomery. Faulkner died as a result of a botched abortion. Stack and Montgomery were poisoned with strychnine. Although suspicions were directed against Cream, there was never enough evidence to convict him. But Jarvis's most shocking discovery 
is that in 1881, Thomas Neil Cream was found guilty of murder and sentenced to life imprisonment. His victim was the Boone County Station agent, Daniel Stott, who died from strychnine poisoning. It turns out that Cream was having an affair with Stott's wife. By rights, Cream should still have been incarcerated in the Illinois State Penitentiary. So how on earth was he able to kill four women in Lambeth? The answer is money. Cream came from a wealthy and respectable family. That's one of the reasons he managed to evade justice for so long, as his father was able to pay for the best lawyers to defend him. In 1881, Cream's brother lobbied the then governor of Illinois, Joseph Pfeiffer, for early release. A contribution was made to Governor Pfeiffer's campaign fund, and on July the 31st, 1891, the convicted murderer Thomas Cream walked free. One of the conditions of his release was that he must leave the state. On September the 10th, just over a month after his release, Cream boarded a ship for England. He landed on October the 1st. Twelve days later, Ellen Donworth, the first of his Lambeth victims, is dead. It's almost as if Cream couldn't wait to start killing again. The inquest into Matilda Clover's death takes place over June and July 1892 at the Vestry Hall in Tooting. The atmosphere is rowdy. The coroner, Athelston Braxton Hicks, has trouble maintaining order. Cream is present, smiling and cheerful, despite the handcuffs around his wrists. His mood is upbeat. Perhaps he knows something the police don't. Or possibly he's deluded. It could be all that opium and morphine he's been taking. Inspector Tunbridge is quietly confident. He has succeeded in tracking down two witnesses who saw Clover in Cream's company the night she died. But will it be enough to convince the coroner's jury? Then, on the 7th of July, the inquest takes a dramatic turn as a new witness is called. As she walks into the hall, the colour drains from Cream's face. He looks like he has seen a ghost. Louisa Harris, a.k.a. Louisa Harvey, is one of the women Cream accused Walter Harper of murdering. Cream believed Harvey was dead for the simple reason that he thought he had killed her. He'd watched her swallow two strychnine tablets. In fact, Harvey had tricked Cream dropping the pills without him noticing. She didn't know what they contained and wasn't going to take any risks. The public listens in rapt silence as Harvey tells her story, pointing to Thomas Neil Cream as the man who gave her the pills. Any doubts there might have been in the minds of the coroner's jury disappear. The inquest has its lighter moments too. Towards the end, the coroner reads out a letter he has received. Dear sir, the man you have in your power, Dr. Neal, is as innocent as you are. Knowing him by sight, I disguised myself like him and made the acquaintance of the girls that have been poisoned. 
I gave them the pills to cure them of all their earthly miseries, and they died. Miss L. Harris has got more sense than I thought she had, but I shall have her yet. The letter is signed, Jack the Ripper. Even Cream joins in the general hilarity, as his last farcical attempt to divert blame is met with the ridicule it deserves. Soon after, the jury deliver their verdict. We are unanimously agreed that Matilda Clover died of strychnine poisoning and that the poison was administered by Thomas Neal with intent to destroy life. The way is clear for Cream to stand trial for murder at the Old Bailey in October. There, he is found guilty and sentenced to death. As he is led from the condemned cell in Newgate Prison on the morning of November the 15th, Cream takes a moment to express his gratitude to the governor and his guards. You all have made the last two days amongst the happiest of my life, he says. It's impossible to understand what's going on in the mind of a man who comes out with such bizarre statements. Perhaps it's the result of his various substance addictions, or perhaps he's simply mad. Given his promiscuous lifestyle, it's likely that Cream had contracted syphilis at some point. One of the symptoms of late-stage syphilis is insanity. The question of Cream's motives remains unanswered. Perhaps it was a twisted attempt to wreak revenge on the women he believed had infected him. Cream certainly didn't profit from any of the deaths he caused, although he did try to extort money from a number of innocent men he accused of his crimes. As with other doctors who kill, power seems to have come into it. Cream was an arrogant, narcissistic sadist who relished the power of life and death that he held over his victims. It has been suggested by some that Thomas Neal Cream was Jack the Ripper. I am Jack, he is said to have cried out as the trap sprang open beneath his feet. But Cream can't have been the Whitechapel murderer because in 1888, when those crimes were committed, he was locked up in the Illinois State Penitentiary. If only he had stayed there until the end of his life as he was supposed to. Next time on Scotland Yard Confidential, in Provence, south of France, on the night of 18th of March, 1973, father and son, John and Jeremy Cartland, are attacked when they pitch their caravan in a lay-by overnight. The attack sees the son wounded, but the father beaten and hacked to death in a brutal, cold-blooded murder. The French police's slightly haphazard approach to investigating this case of significant international importance means that by the time Scotland Yard get their hands on the files, they'll have their work cut out to get a conviction, despite being sure of who the murderer is. Scotland 
Scotland Yard Confidential is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Poirot for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Series consultant, Roger Morris. Written by Roger Morris. Hosted by me, John Hopkins. Supervising editor, Kevin Pham. Sound designed by Matthias Torres-Sole. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mix master by Kian Ryan Morgan. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley.